Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics Podcast with Savage Critics website. Episode 101 is here to bring you into the Nati Atis, as Graham McMillan and I talk the latest Zero issues of the DC New 52 and some of the stranger retcon choices being made thereby. The latest ginchiest issue of Profit by Brandon Graham and Pharrell Dalrymple, the stunning epic that is 2001 A Space Odyssey as adapted and reconceived by Jack Kirby, and the ferocious pastiche that is Tom Scioli's Final Frontier. Plus, we also hand-ring and kvetch about seconds and multiple warheads, have a chat about the cult of the creators that applies to Gilbert Hernandez, Matt Wagner, and Mike Allred, and manage to give you generous dollops of your favorite side dish, Tasty Plate, of much, much more. At a little over two hours, this episode has everything in discerning what not might hope for, including show notes you can find over at savagecritic.com. As always, we hope you enjoy, and now, more than ever, we thank you for listening. Jeff Lester, on the dot. I feel that's very impressive. Well, thank you. Thank you. I uh, I wanted to try and spend some time setting up uh, the the recording environment to maybe alleviate some problems that uh, have been popping up in editing. So I was here and logged on and ready to go. So are we actually recording now or are we doing some tests? Should we be like testing? <laughs> testing. One, two, three. Testing. <laughs> Yes, keep saying that, like, repeatedly, for about... For, for two hours? Pretty test, much, testing, yeah. Testing, testing, <laughs> Hey, testing. And you'll be like, hey, Graham, what did you think of it? I'll be like, testing, Te- testing, te- testing, testing, sibilance, sibilance. Uh, yeah. Um, I can't say that word normally. <laughs> hey, so here's something funny. Yes. But not really funny, but it's been amusing me lately. Um, so the Word Balloon podcast does the Bendis interviews, like on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But Ben has changed the way that he is doing the calls. He's now doing, I guess, Skype or FaceTime. He's doing something through his iPad and mm-hmm. the sound quality is so much better. Really? And I, I've been listening to these podcasts for years now. Like, I remember listening to these when I was going to work in San Francisco and I've been in Portland for three years. Um, the most recent one where he's doing it through his iPad, it's the first time I ever realized Brian Michael Bendis has the worst lisp imaginable. Really? He has a really terrible lisp, and it's never been apparent to me until uh, I'm listening to him talk through uh, whatever he's doing on his iPad. Really? That's fan- fascinating. I had no idea. Hmm. Um, yeah, whereas we have, like, as, some, as a very uh, um, on-the-ball uh, listener pointed out, and probably I'm sure other people noticed but did not necessarily point out, there was some really weird things going on with uh, episode 100, which it, really... It like, I am answering you before you've asked questions and stuff? I saw yes. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it was really... I, yes. I was really tempted to just respond and say, no, we are psychic. <laughs> Well, there, I think there is certainly an extent to that um, because there are times where one or the other can figure out where the other one's going and is laughing about it. But what was fascinating was a lot of times uh, when I was editing the podcast, and it's, hope people won't actually hear this, but you had – I think there was some weird two-second delay going on in that usually you would you would say something – And then two seconds later, like if it was something uh, uh, amusing, I would actually start laughing. And it was almost always like exactly two seconds. Also, there was a really strong echo delay. Like I could hear you very, very clearly, Um, you know, like two seconds after, you you know, you would I would get this echo. So I, I tried to edit out as much 
empty space in that last podcast so that people wouldn't hear that, wouldn't hear you sort of double talking to them and driving them even closer to a Lovecraftian fit of madness. But uh, but that is my entire aim in doing this podcast. Well, so you didn't, I mean, I know that I'm a little slower on the uptake and you're you're very kind to actually continue podcasting with Jeff Lester, your slow friend, but I didn't seem more slow than usual last time we spoke, did I? Uh, no. Well, what do you mean by slow? As in, like, I'd say things and then there actually would be a two-second delay? Yes. No, no, that wasn't happening. Okay, good. Whew. All right. I'm pleased that at least that was... <laughs> do you not think if that was happening at some point during our two-and-a-half-hour two hour conversation, I would have been like, Jeff, are you okay? You sound distracted or something. <laughs> I don't know, Graham. You're a trooper. That's uh, that's how I put it in the comments. You're you're you know you're sort of like I can make this work. You know, I, I may be a trooper, but even so, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That's actually even believable. troopers have their limits, which sounds like it should be like a Stan Lee thing. Oh my God, I thought so too. I'm like ah, oh. like you just as soon as you saw it, it's like I see it in all yellow caps, you know, with like a red fiery uh, cap. I was going to say, yeah, like a, a starburst or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's me recreating the um, the thing pose from this man, this monster at the start. <laughs> like me just sort of slumped over going, oh. <laughs> Actually, I think it would be awesome to see you drawn as the thing. That is, That would be like... I hope somebody actually at a con uh, gets a chance to to meet you. <laughs> Put their the thing. Oh yeah, that would yeah, be awesome. He is my favorite Marvel character, so that would be an honor for me. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like it's one of it's like one of those awesome little little deals. Like uh, you know, if if you were because I'm never one of those guys, and I wish that I was. You know, those those really smart comic fans who like get a sketchbook and they start going around and asking for sketches, and then they have themes. Like I oh, see that that's not just smart. That's like ballsy in a way that I'm not. Mm. Like I can't go up to someone and be like, "I really like your work. Listen, here, here's my sketchbook. Right? Will Will you draw? You know, and me as Spider-Man fighting Doctor Octopus, but Doctor Octopus is J. Jonah Jameson." <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Something something much like that. Um I don't know why I suddenly flashed to K Box's sketchbook. <laughs> Honestly, as soon as I said on me, I was like, oh god, this is going bad. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Should, was... should we explain that? I don't know if many people know the K Box thing. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, we might Art, as well. I think this would be good. I would think that a lot of people who listen to us probably do, but I say give it a go. Okay, if if you do not, um, there was a gentleman called Kurt. Oh, what was his last name? Boxleitner. I think so. Um, who was very vehemently anti New Marvel back when New Marvel was New Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember if this was like a genuine thing or a joke that got horrifically out of hand. Mm-hmm. But he seemed to have a fetish for Aunt May in Ultimate Spider-Man. Oh, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that somehow turned into him talking about Aunt May porn a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, this is the part where I'm like, I don't know if it was a joke or if it was serious. Because by the time I got to that stage, right. I was like, this is just uncomfortable. <laughs> well, the- I don't want to get involved. Yeah, so I'm not quite sure what. Yeah. I mean, the thing, yeah, and you know, the thing that I always found kind of ironic was I was always like, huh, I must be closer to 
being an Aunt May porn aficionado than I thought, because generally, for the most part, I found the majority of his comments to be relatively thoughtful. I know other people thought that he was just incredibly trolly-ish, but I somehow never quite got that same vibe off of him. He was a troll. He was a troll who made some very good points. Yeah. There came a point where he just, like, he crossed the line. Do you know what I think? I I don't know. I don't think, um, I think because... Here's the thing, I think he crossed back a lot. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think you just dismiss him as a troll, but I also don't think you could be like, I don't really think he was a troll, because he definitely had troll moments. He, I'm sure he did. I probably didn't see most of them, or uh, if I did, I sort of retained them. But yeah, I think I think you're probably right. You know, uh, but what what impressed me was he got he got branded a troll a lot, and yet he really did make what I thought were some decent points. But but of course, I've since learned that that's the most insidious troll of all. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's how they get you. Yeah, exactly. They, they lure they you in. Mm-hmm. And you're like, hey, maybe you're not that bad. And then all of a sudden they're like, have I shown you the innocence of Muslims? And then it all goes downhill from there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, God, I could have sworn we had somewhere else. Well, comic news. I have to say, Graham, I <clears throat> enjoyed putting together uh, episode 100. I mean, you know, talking with you and editing it and getting it done on time, uploaded. It was. <laughs> Is this where you're like, but it left me with no time to read comics? No, I read a few comics, but I'm really sitting here thinking, <clears throat> I'm kind of like, I, I thought I read more than I had. I mean, the great thing about reading so much stuff digitally is. You know, it's not around, uh, but the drawback is... It's, it's not around. Yeah, so I'm I'm not entirely sure. I'm like, did I read some super big collection on the iPad that I don't entirely remember? Um, and some of it is is that I've got half-read things, like things that I want to talk about, but I didn't finish reading them, and so it's probably going to oh, be... Are you, so is this another week where we're going to be talking about lots of old stuff? Because the majority of things that I've been reading this week uh-huh. have really been old things as well, apart from the, the end of the DC Zero month, which... Holy moly. <laughs> let's hear more. Well, let's hear about that because I definitely found that aspect of episode 100 kind of interesting because you really are, I, you know, I can't. So, so, so here's what happens mm-hmm. to Tim Drake's origin in Teen Titans. Right. Tim Drake is not Tim Drake anymore. Mm-hmm. He's Tim someone else who, in trying to get the attention of Batman, manages to get his parents attacked by the Penguin so that his parents have to go into a witness protection program, which kind of makes him an orphan, so that he has to get a new last name, and his parents completely disappear, so Bruce Wayne adopts him and he becomes Robin. But he doesn't become Robin. He becomes Red Robin. Wow. Wow. It's just a little bit overcomplicated. Yes. That is crazy. Uh, Was that and who was See, that's, teen, that's Teen Titans issue zero. It's uh, written by Scott Lobdell, who also manages to um, do a fascinating tweak to uh, Jason Todd's history in Red Hood. And by fascinating, I mean ill-considered. Right. And that was the whole, uh, like... The Joker's yeah. behind everything. Oh, no, I missed that part. Yes, really? Yeah. The Joker. So what happens is you get the, the Jason Todd history, which is not amazingly different from... Um, the, the pre-crisis history of Jason Todd. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the post-crisis history of Jason Todd. Um, in that, you know, he's a, he's a bad guy. He meets Batman. Batman kind of gives him a second chance. He finds out his mother is not dead like he thought. He goes to find his mother. He gets killed by the Joker. Okay. okay? 
So you get that, and then there's like a three-page or two-page epilogue where mm-hmm. the joke shows up, and he's like, yeah, guess what? I'm the guy who basically fucked up his father, so he turned up the turn out the screwed up, and then made sure that he would be around Batman at the right time for Batman to adopt him and take him oh, on. Oh, no, 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 no. And, and then it's like, and I did it so that I could really mess Batman up by killing him. Right. Uh, yeah. Which is interesting, I guess. Like, it's it's a... I, I don't quite know where they're going there apart from bad places. You know, this is the thing that I think is interesting. Like, remember when uh, there was that that thing that came out, uh, I think I'm, I'm Bleeding Cool, where uh, Dan DiDio or maybe I take it back. Maybe it was Scott Snyder or somebody at, at one of the cons said that they'd been instructed to write the DC New 52 books like they were fan fiction. Remember, and then they came out and clarified, and they're like, "No, no, 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 no. We didn't say write it like fan fiction. We said write it, you know, with the same sense of you know inappropriate boundaries as fan fiction." Do you know what I mean? I, do, do you remember this story? I do not, and that's fascinating and huh. so terrible. <laughs> well, this is it because I'm sort of like after hearing these last two, I'm like. They kind of actually do sound more like fan fiction. Like that's really just a very fanficy twist, where it's like it's there's nothing elegant to it, but it's kind of got that like um, oh, I don't know, sort of obs- obsessiveness that you find in fan fiction. I suppose it's really weird. I find myself completely sort of almost wanting to support what they've done. Not because mm-hmm. I think they're good ideas, but because if there's one way to say this is not the same DCU as it was before, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. just fucking around with this stuff is a good way of doing it. Because, right. you know, the Batman books, or, you know, there's that in the Green Lantern books, everyone thought, well, it's pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. And so to do your flashback month and be like, it's really not. And the Green Lantern titles did that as well. Or okay. at least Green Lantern Corps did. It gave Guy Gardner a completely... Oh, that's right. The completely different origin, yeah. Um... Right. And I think that's, you know, if you are trying to be like, it is new, mm-hmm. then it's a relatively smart way of going about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just that the changes they chose to do are right. terrible. Seem really ill-conceived, yeah. um, which, I, which, again, is just that amazing thing with DC for me of like, you know, okay, so you're going to commit, you're going to do this thing. Why don't you take the time to actually explore this? Like, honestly, I feel like they should have done like a massive editorial retreat, at least before the zero issue. Because I did this thing for Newsarama yesterday, but like, you know, what are the big changes we find out from the Batman books? And when you read them all, Mm -hmm. timeline does not make sense. Right, right. Like, and it's really simple stuff. Mm -hmm. Damien is now... Well, it's not that he's born before Bruce Wayne becomes Batman, because I can actually kind of buy that. You just, mm-hmm. okay, you know, Bruce Wayne and Tally hooked up before he was Batman. But he finds a Batman outfit before Bruce Wayne becomes Batman. Oh, wait, I wasn't following this. So they actually are positing that he that Bruce Wayne and Tally hooked up pre-Batman? It's the only way it makes sense. Oh, I thought... I, oh, okay. Batman right. Issue Zero says... Very clearly, the Batman happened between six and five years ago. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Damien's 10. Yeah, but I, am I mistaken? Or I thought one of the revelations that uh, Talia tells Damien about is, is that he is artificially aged, I thought. If that's the case, then they kind of hide it in Batman Robin because you see him have five birthdays. 
Huh. Because at first I thought that's what would happen because you see right. Damien. I think you could you could really cheat and say he's artificially aged for like the first five years of his life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's a cheat you could go for. But then it celebrates five birthdays. Mm-hmm. So if he's, they're artificially aging him, why celebrate the birthdays? Right. You know what I mean, right. that's the part that seems odd. And that's where the timeline really gets screwed up. Wow. Wow, that's a mess. I mean... Because a really simple thing, because the, the other thing is, you see four of those birthdays on a double-page spread. Mm-hmm. Really, you could just take out one. <laughs> right. After fine. Yeah, I don't know. I, it it is great. It's like somebody trying to, you know. Yeah, it's 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 honestly. I think someone just miscounted when they're putting the book together. <laughs> oh, really? Generally, I think they're like, okay, so that's uh, okay. That that's like five years, right? Because the other yeah. thing, it, it all of the that's not true. The framing sequence of Batman Robin issue zero takes place. It says eighteen months ago. Mm. So he's got five birthdays that you see before eighteen months ago. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, mm-hmm. six years younger. Uh, my so wait, so there's so half years younger, in fact. Before six and a half years younger, when he finds Batman's cowl, presuming he finds Batman's cowl on the day of his first birthday in the book, even though Batman became Batman somewhere between six and five years ago. Yeah, unless they're saying that Damien is actually seven and a half. I I mean, I'm completely. I'm like, wow. Six, kids when you see him find the thing like he's got to be at least three uh-huh you see him find because he's talking mm-hmm. when you see him find the cow right he's supposed to be do they say how old damien actually is isn't he 10 or 11 they've said 10 and i think an earlier issue of batman and robin yeah that's kind of what i sort of thought if i haven't said he's 10 years old uh-huh uh-huh oh boy well that's uh yeah that's a big pile of mess i mean like i said i could have sworn that the whole thing with talia is that she's she mentions that you know he's a clone and i kind of thought there was some mention of artificial aging but of course i don't have access to any of that right now him coming out of an artificial womb so they don't Mm -hmm. they don't undo any cloneness like he could still be a clone oh sure but i'm just saying like as long as you've got the clone out which is easy why do you not just keep in the artificial aging yeah putting putting the birthdays in is the really crazy part yeah yeah oh it's like didn't do that you'd be fine but i mean then you've also got the stuff that uh dick grayson becomes robin five years ago Mm -hmm. seems to be in his mid-teens when he's robin Mm -hmm. i must be i mean i guess that would make him 20 as nightwing yeah, maybe maybe they're trying to posit him as nineteen or twenty. Looks he looks much older than that. Whereas Batman seems to be in his uh, early thirties now. Mm-hmm. Seems mm-hmm. Old for Batman. Mm-hmm. Ju- judging from the way they've done the timeline, mm-hmm. it's just it's a crazy, crazy like it's one of those things where they're really trying to fill in all the gaps. Mm-hmm. There seems to be so little coordination between them when they fill in the right <laughs> crazy. So. The Joker shoots and cripples Batgirl uh, three years ago, but mm-hmm. one year ago she's in action uh, in Birds of Prey, which would suggest that she's heels really like at least a year before the book start. But then in mm-hmm. back she won. She's like, I've just been healed. <laughs> Here's me getting back into action as Batgirl. Wow. Ah, uh, yeah. Things do not necessarily go together well. Right. Right, which I, I'm I'm fascinated that, that that 
is such a fundamental basic level of kind of fanboyism that they, I, I you know, that I, I, I can't, I think it's sometimes I just think that it's like you're running on the treadmill of monthly comics. And this is probably true, you know, even more true of the editors, mm. you know, because even if you swap out a, a you get a fill in artist or you get a fill in writer or something like that, you know, your editorial team is there month after month with all the same deadlines. And so unless they have, you know, enough space carved out that they can go away and say like, okay, here's, here's our little timeline thing. But honestly, you know, you would think with the tools available now, you know, I'm like, doesn't like DC have like an internal office wiki? You know what I mean? I was going to say someone just needs to like, they need to come up with, you know, by themselves two months where they're like, okay, we're not doing anything crazy with continuity. We're mm-hmm. doing whatever stories, and they're essentially fill-in stories, whatever. Right. And someone needs to go away and read all of the new 52 books up until now and come up with a timeline and then put it in a wiki. That, it's yeah. Really, like, it's incredibly simple to do, but mm-hmm. someone needs to do it because right mm-hmm. now, things do not really go together well, which right. is a real problem when you're trying to do the, our universe is really tightly contained. Right. Right, exactly. Well, I'm just I'm I'm impressed that even, you know, the stuff that uh, you know, that Scott Snyder tried to all jam into Batman 1, you know, that people were like, "No, nah, that's not going to." You know what I mean? Like, no, you know, as opposed to like I don't know, some other some other sort of rolling forward. Well, uh, there, there's type all, of all through the zero issues, there's some crazy stuff. Like Catwoman issue 0 is mm-hmm. Zero, just I think someone even said in the comments, they're like, "How is it? It's Anishanti. It's our first book. Mm-hmm. Not like an Anishanti book mm-hmm. at all. It is like someone thought, how can I make this book infinitely more complicated than it needs to be? Huh? Infinitely more complicated. It, it's hmm. one of those things where they're like, I, how can I really mix things up? Oh, this, and no one had the guts to be like, this is a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Dare I ask? Selena Kyle isn't really Selena Kyle. She, her, someone has erased all records of her identity. But before they did that, she found herself in a database with a Russian name, and her identity and her Selena Kyle was in as an alias. And mm-hmm. discovered that database, it set off alarms, and then someone tried to kill her as a result. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> Why can't she just be Selena Kyle the Runaway? Like. Like, uh, are they trying? Because that's sort of that's like the Dark Knight Rises thing, right? It's like that Dark Knight Rises subplot that they had going on with her. Uh, Do you remember where she's kind of saying like that? You know, they've got information on me that I need taken care of, and that's why I'm doing this thing for them, sort of deal. I guess I don't know. I I think I think that's a stretch, to be honest. Really, I I'm like it's it's to me it's the only like there's enough things that are lined up about it that I think I, it. I'm not saying it makes sense or is even good per se, but I do kind of get the thing of like, oh, that does remind me. Like I think they were making noises in the Dark Knight Rises that you know that the Catwoman in that one may not, her actual name may not have been Selena Kyle, that that's, you know, her current name and that she did have like these past identity things that she was, she wanted wiped out. She is, is what I'm saying. Like, suddenly get the character not knowing who she is in her entire life is a lie. And yeah. I said, so she's surprised that she's not Selena Kyle as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, 
that's the part that's the part I really have the problem with. The mm-hmm. even she doesn't know who she is. It's just mm-hmm. really that's where you're going, honestly. Oh god. Um yeah, and just I mean, but there's other books I think do the interconnectivity thing really well. I mm-hmm. really liked Blue Beetle issue zero. Hmm. Um, which is the origin of the scarab, not the origin of Jaime. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like a smart choice. And sets it up as and like really not even casually, but like sort of drops in in the background. Mm-hmm. Origin of Lady Sticks from 52, if you remember her. I do remember her very vaguely. Uh, so they're quite clearly setting up her return. Because mm-hmm. she shows up as like the a character who can resist the Scarab. Yeah. As a kid. Hmm. And I'm thinking of like, well, now that I realize there's bad things out there, I'm just going to have to destroy everything. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. They're like, for everything that I liked, it felt like there was like three or four things I really disliked. Well, see, that's it. The batting average seems really low. Also, uh, talking about the Catwoman thing, I sort of realized that there is a... Maybe this is the wrong way to look at it, but I sort of felt this way while flipping through, while reading Flash Zero, which is... um, uh, which tries to work in, I know because you've read it, but I'll, I'll mention it for the readers. Uh, Flash Zero uh, has Barry Allen's origin retold and reframed uh, with all the crazy, like, my dad murdered my mom stuff that, that was in Jeff Johns' run. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that struck me about it was that when you've got, like, a, and you know, pardon the, the Marvel-sounding expression, when you've got a new universe for your DC characters that is really not, is basically one year old at this point. Like it seems to me the one storyline that you don't want to do is the, you know, this thing isn't what the other person thinks it is. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of like, because the DC universe, the, the new 52 is in this place where I think a lot of people keep sort of half expecting it to be revealed as a fake, you know, like if you read through Flashpoint and, you know, you've got this sense that, you know, this is a different construct. This is this totally different time changed universe. Um, and and it's, it's almost like talking about fake things in the middle of what feels like a fake universe is kind of a mistake. You know what I mean? It just sort of point like, you don't want to point the to the reader outside the frame too heavily, especially when that frame is the the shaky new fifty two construct. You know what I mean? But what's really because they've called out that new that flashpoint thing again in Justice League? Did they? Yeah, they've had. Um, I want to say it was Justice League. Maybe it was another book. They've definitely had a book where Batman is looking at the letter Flash gave him at the end of Flashpoint. Huh. And Pandora's very existence right seems to suggest they're going to follow up on flashpoint the thing is flashpoint says the very opposite of that it says that all of the dc universes you've known up until that point are fake because the mm-hmm. true dc universe is the one that is the new 52 one hmm. and i'm wondering if that's what they're going to do they are going to do a, a not even a retcon but a reveal mm-hmm. underscore that you'd be like sorry everyone <laughs> It's right. It's going to be. Right, right. Because that was kind of a throwaway line in Flashpoint. Mm-hmm. You really want to double down. That's the way to do it. Right, right. Well, it sounds like that's probably what they would do then. 
Um, but uh, I guess, uh, you know, New 50, I think they're certainly aware that the New 52 is, for the most part, successful enough um, that it's pretty important that they don't back out of it, back into their old status quo. So, yeah, I can see the, like you said, there's a definite advantage to them in doubling down on it. But at the same time, part of me is like, A, it's still, it's such a mess. You know, the DC New 52 is such a mess on its own, much less a, fe- a mess if you consider the Flashpoint stuff. But it also, it gives, yeah. them, gives them the way to fix it as well. Mm-hmm. All of these mistakes have happened because we were restoring things. Oh, right. And, well, right, right, right. We had that from a DC Cosmic story. <laughs> right, right. Oh, boy. Still falling back into place. Yeah, exactly. We the, the... contradicted ourselves. <laughs> oh dear! Very oh dear! I say to do, but but it doesn't mean they're not going to do it again, right? I don't know. I I think keeping Pandora active, mm-hmm. actually, and I guess that's where this Trinity War story thing next year is going. Mm-hmm. But um, really does give them wiggle room to fix their mistakes if they really want, right? Because if you've got a character who has, you know, quote unquote, restored the universe before, if you mm-hmm. with her, mm-hmm. presumably you can change things again. Boy, I sure hope they don't do that. Also, I have to say, the crow outside your window is hilariously loud. It's actually, it doesn't even sound that loud to me, but I kind of like the, the microphone's clearly catching it a lot. There are, clearly, yeah. There are always crows around this house. Hmm. Is it Brandon because... Graham. No, Brandon Graham. Brandon Lee. Brandon Graham as the crow would be awesome, though. <laughs> that would be kind of great. Um, gosh, why do I feel like I read something by him? Oh, because I read Prophet, which was terrific. Um, the Prophet Train? Uh, yeah, Prophet Issue 29, which came out this week, is um, is probably my favorite since it launched, which isn't surprising because it's got pretty much the same characters uh same creative team it's brandon graham and uh feral dalrymple doing so it's not you know, simon roy anymore what's that is simon roy gone like uh well, i don't know if he's completely gone i imagine that he'll he'll cycle back in i kind of got the sense that they were using sort of a rotating team you know they had because last issue was Maybe the last two issues were Giannis Marconis, and then I think it was Simon Roy before that, and then I think it was Dalrymple. So, I mean, I'm I'm not paying much attention, but I, I think Graham is actually rolling through with the different artists and using and talking about me. I'm not paying much attention. I think different profits with each artist team because this guy in issue 29 is the same one from issue. 21 22 whatever the new reboot issue was mm-hmm. um and it's great it's awesome like i know that there's enough of our listeners that are already on on the the profit train but if you like the first issue and the other ones left you cold pick this one up because it really is the perfect mix of science fiction meets conan you know it's it's great i really enjoyed it a lot um the the John Prophet from the first issue ends up getting you know while basically uh, helping transport 
the star fallen empire mother back to her home planet they end up moving through the middle of this sort of millennial long space war that's called the Ixtano circus it's 300 it's a 300 year war he ends up uh prophet ends up getting dragged into one of the ships falling disappearing into a gravity well or whatever and essentially falling into the slave mind ecosystem that exists inside one of these huge organic ships and then you know it begins the process of the rebellion of these various organisms to escape and break free of their control it's just again it's conan in space and with amazing art and some really great fun ideas behind it really really good i don't again you you i am i am completely cursed with profit in that every time someone talks about it i'm like that sounds amazing and every time right. i try and read it because I, I i got the um the collection oh did you great uh, and i was like okay you know sitting down mm-hmm. giving this attention really gonna try hard and again i just i never got an in with it Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I was left thinking, you know, this is really well done, mm-hmm. as opposed to I'm really enjoying this, and I right. don't I don't know what it is. I don't know why. I just it's like someone describing a really good story to me than reading a really good story. I just cannot, yeah, get an into it, and it, it's it's kind of really frustrating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I I'm like I should like this. I like everyone involved. <laughs> you know, I I. I like it's big ideas. I like this, and I just don't. Well, like I, th- I admire it, but I don't like it. Right. Well, and I think this is it. I I feel like you know if there's one thing the past hundred episodes have taught us, it's I think you respond more strongly to emotions. Yes. You know, emotionalism with you know, and in the course of your story and. And and profit really is the opposite of that. Yeah, it's true. It, it's sort of it's not that it rejects emotions, but it's very detached from everything. Yeah, it's super super detached to kind of give you the the strange sort of brainy like admiration at remove kind of thing. You know, I mean the it doesn't it in no way looks acts or you know talks like a Kubrick movie, but in some ways in in that sense it reminds me of Kubrick or some of the other chillier directors you get oh jeff you've just provided the greatest segue (laughs) really go what do you think i read recently that i told you i i had found oh of course because i i think i made some point about begging you for uh, a copy or something jack kirby's 2001 uh ladies and gentlemen everything you expect Mm -hmm. from Kirby doing Kubrick. It's mm-hmm. so, especially the adaptation of the movie, mm-hmm. it's so amazingly recognizable as mm-hmm. one artist reconfiguring the ideas from other artists. Mm-hmm. Like, you're like, oh, I recognize the plot beats, but it's an entirely different fucking story. Mm-hmm. Exactly mm-hmm. the same plot, but the execution is so amazingly different. It's so much more dynamic. It's so much more emotionally engaging. Because Kirby mm-hmm. is an incredibly emotional writer. He, yes. he, he cannot write something uh, and not – he cannot write something subtly, but part of that is he cannot write something that is not exciting. Right. And so right. you have – like no one feels afraid. They feel completely mm-hmm. shitting themselves. 
Right. You know, no one feels happy. They are giddy with happiness. Right. Uh, and so Kirby Doing 2001 is is astounding to read because you really are like – it's like a cover version. It really is <laughs> like <laughs> – you know, your, your favorite band's doing that song you kind of like from that other band. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, now I get it. And then mm-hmm. that, him doing the, the ongoing series, is mm-hmm. crazy to read. Mm-hmm. Especially mm-hmm. because for the first, uh, definitely for the first like three stories, which is four issues, mm-hmm. it's exactly the same plot piece from the film. Right. And it is kind of weird because I remember reading one of like issue three or issue four which I forget, is it something like it's like the fountain of youth, but then it ends up with the monolith involved and all this other stuff. And it is, it has that same plot beat of at the end of the issue. They become, they become the, the, the star child. Yeah. Which he calls it the new seed. Right. And very, mm-hmm. and the, the text piece of the first issue, he's basically like, what is the new seed? And he, I mean, it's very Kirby. Hang on. I'm going to see if I can find it. Cause it, Ooh, yeah. It's an amazing thing to read. Cause you're just like, Really? What the fuck? <laughs> like my mind's kind of go because every story has the um, the guy like the astronaut, and then he meets the monolith, and then he is mm-hmm. in an alternate reality where he grows very old and dies and turns mm-hmm. to Star Child. That's the plot mm-hmm. over and over again. <laughs> so the variation is who is this guy before he meets the monolith, and what is the alternate reality? Right. That's that's it for the variation until he gets to like issue five and six maybe um, mm-hmm. is just mind blowing and and so mind blowing that it's one of those the fact that this is not in print is actually a travesty because mm-hmm. it Kirby writing about losing yourself in fantasy and the fantasy of superheroes. Oh man, I. Remember somebody mentioning that that there were were some really heavy metatextual one or two metatextual issues in Kirby's run, and this must be it. The fucking mind blower. It really is. And then after that, he goes, and here's Machine Man, and it's, you're really like, <laughs> oh my god! Like, don't get me wrong, Machine Man's great, but that thing you just did. <laughs> um, okay. By and large, it is the creation of the new seed, which seems to be the basic consistent thread running throughout the now famous saga we call Space Odyssey. The new seed, in in effect, emerges as the triumphant character at the climax of this magazine. It is this enigmatic rascal for whom all the fuss and the fury of the ages is first stirred up and then laid to rest in a final bow to the future. Sorry, bow to the future. But who is the new seed? Or perhaps we should ask, what is the new seed? Is it man in transition? A testament to survival and continuous, some fantastic projection of our ultimate destiny, or is it the natural acceptance of what we expect to come after us? It goes on like that for a page. Wow. Do you, do you want to wow. like jump to the end? Because I mean, I, I could honestly read the whole thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like I think you should go for the whole thing. I've, you know, but none of the speculations may be correct, especially in the view of the imposing appearance of that alien counterpoint, the monolith. That granite gremlin, that's right, granite gremlin, Wow! towers above these proceedings like an overpowering phantom, talking only to a chosen few when the desired time is at hand. It is the monolith which is to fly in our ointment when it comes to nailing down our opinions of the new seed. For if there is an alien power shaping the course of our evolution through the monolith, then it is doing so for purposes beyond our understanding. That power may well be injecting ingredients we're not aware of, changing a natural order to one of its own design. 
Still, the monolith is a fictional element in a very real process. I believe that it is this process which intrigues us, and it is this underlying thought which has made Space Odyssey such an immortal product in the cinema, in literature, and now all willing in comics. Now that we're here, where are we going? That is the question posed by the monolith, and it is a question which has enthralled man since the beginning. Indeed, next to the more basic question of our individual identities, this larger puzzle will continue to tease us to the end of our days. Unfortunately, it will remain a continuous boon to the workers of the editorial vineyards, as happens souls who make a living off our abilities to involve you in the fantasies so necessary in providing the proper balance in your everyday joust with reality. Yes, the new seed is the conquering hero in this latest Marvel drama. Why? Because he is staying power, that's why. He will always be there in this story's final moments to taunt us with a question we shall never answer. This little shaver, I love that he said... of our own hopes in a world which daily makes us more than a bit uneasy about our future. Also, this is the part that really blew my mind. Today, man is fouling the air. He's exterminating entire species of flora and fauna. The oceans smell of foul odours, and they are disturbing, there are disturbing rumours. We are destroying the life cycle of the very sea creatures which have provided us with the necessities for existence. It can all start with very small things, like plankton, the lowest form of life in the pecking order, Eliminate plankton and a higher species dies out. That causes the extinction of an even higher life form and another and another until the whole chain disintegrates and leaves the oceans barren. It could happen. The world could go out with a whimper instead of a bang and our every vision of the future could suddenly become highly academic. This is the point, however, where our cute little champion, the new seed, comes to the rescue. In the meagre space devoted to his appearance, he brightens our hopes considerably. He is a comforting visual almost tangible reminder that the future is not yet up for grabs and wherever his journey takes him matters not wit to one to this writer the mere fact that the chances of his making it are still good is the comforting thought in short the new seed is no more than the spirit of our own self-belief our own confidence in the stubborn rationale which has brought us from the caves to condominiums in the suburbs somehow at the very edge of group destruction history gives evidence of our persistence proclivity on the part of human beings for keeping mind and whatever else matters on an even keel. The new seed merely says that we can do it. We can keep the environment and ourselves running into the distant future. We can someday knock off our hostilities and concentrate together on the great mystery of the stars. But until the day arrives, my advice to the reader is not to break the fantasy cycle. The excitement in store in Marvel's Space Odyssey will be heightened by an awesome array of characters that are guaranteed to freak out the faithful fan. And in the vanguard will be the new seat. For, it has been said of the converging cast, a little squirt shall lead them. That's <laughs> from the first issue. <laughs> I, all of that is just awesome. It is, with no exaggeration, the ultimate Kirby book for like the first six issues for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Going so cosmic. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It really Kirby been like, okay, so life, what's it all about? Mm-hmm. And not just being weird, mm-hmm. freed of the of the heroic ideal. Mm-hmm. So you have characters who are, I mean, even in the losers, which I think is the closest thing to this. Mm-hmm. They're still like he's got these core characters who, you know, are heroes who mm-hmm. are fighting the Nazis and who who have to survive. Whereas in this book, every single story, the character dies. <laughs> 
Like mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. have they have a moment where they're faced with some great dilemma. And then the model spears and they die. Something about that that's just amazing. Um yeah, it just it really is is crazy. I know of course it's also filled with incredible incredible art, but also incredible Kirby dialogue and narration. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sure of it. Um because that that was really his prime in that case. You know? Ultimate Kirby book. It really is one of those oh man, everything in common. Especially because of the, of the Star Child and the Monolith, there is mm-hmm. nothing connecting it to the movie. I'm sorry, what was There's that? Nothing connecting it to the movie. Uh, yeah, no, right, exactly. Well, and and it even sounds like he's um, rejecting at least half of what the bar, what the uh, what the movie is putting forward. Apparently, I mean, he's 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 basically like, and this is what the Monolith means to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going. You know, here's the monolith. Here's Star Child. This is what they mean to me. And I'm not even calling them Star Childs. I'm calling them the new seat. <laughs> <laughs> even when you get to Mr. Miracle, uh, not Mr. Miracle, uh, or Machine, mm-hmm. as he's called. Right. Even then, you have Kirby just uh, every single issue, because he's in three issues, every single issue just comes up with. The, all these things that you're like, why did no one ever do anything with this? I mean, even Kirby didn't. He sets up a status quo that he then completely ignores when Machine Man gets his own series. Mm-hmm. He finds, let's see, what is the name of the character? He essentially brings in the devil <laughs> as the villain. The, For Machine yeah. Man? Yeah. Wow. Demon appears who actually says, prepare to yield that which is free will and try to defeat Machine Man. Mm-hmm. And Machine Man basically like, nope, sorry, but don't bother reaching for my soul again, he says. It's not up for grabs, you horrendous souped-up gizmo. <laughs> holographic image uh, of a supercomputer with the potential to rule the world. Of course. Because of course. Kirby. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's because, yeah, it's because, okay, the last line, the last line of the book even though it's like Ned's issue, we have an amazing news story, and then it just gets cancelled. Last one on the book is Machine Man having destroyed the supercomputer. Mm-hmm. If that ends it all, whoever built the mind monitor is at the center of a devil worshipping cult. An evil genius dreams too big to have been Mr. Hotline. It may be my destiny to find him and stop him, to protect man's rights to think free. Wow. Wow. It's seriously awesome. Yeah. Never pulled yeah. up. Even. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a shame. What an what an odd thing. I wonder why he like put all that stuff forward and then by the time Machine Man gets his own series, it's like, well, nah, never mind that. <laughs> yeah, it's actually really weird because the Machine Man series is almost like a reboot. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I can't remember if the Machine Man series at any point during Kirby's run has an explicit connection to the Marvel Universe. But two thousand one explicitly says that it's not part of the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than once. And uh, in the Man three parter, you've got who mm-hmm. reads Marvel comics, and oh, all really? the way through, yeah. Uh, hmm. So I don't know if it, like Machine Man was his attempt to like reboot the concept for the Marvel universe or not. But in the the three parter, Machine Man makes peace with the authorities. They're mm-hmm. like, we're not going to hunt you down anymore. 
And then Precision Machine Man opens up with him being like, fuck off, military. Right. Yeah, he's like hiding behind a tree as like some dudes in Jeeps are driving by or something. Huh. I wonder if... Amazing, amazing material. I wonder if his, uh, like, Kirby's original plan that, you know, was going to tie back into the other 2001 stuff that he had already put forward. And he was like, well, I got to drop that because that's where that was going. You know, when he re- when he redid the series, you know, it was like, okay, you've got to have this series. You can't really, don't put any ties to the 2001 license because then we won't, yeah. you know, we don't have the rights to it anymore. You don't know, but it's it's really... Strange and like the monolith shows up a couple of times in the the uh, mis- the machine man stories, and mm-hmm. do anything to him because mm-hmm. he's a robot. Like it just sort of shows up. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a strange floating, you know, there's a strange floating monolith. What does it mean? It's weird. Like the, the machine man stuff is really, really weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this is yeah. at at the risk of throwing off your momentum. I noticed that um, uh, I'm I'm having a little more difficulty hearing you at the beginning of sentences, which makes me wonder if it is part of the echo overlap thing. So I was thinking what I do is jump off very quickly and then call you back again uh, and get this on a separate recording and or hopefully a separate Skype call. That's a good idea. And listeners, we'll be right back after these messages. Now you meant just a second. I really did. I really did. Well, I think I'm usually pretty good about saying like, um, just a second. Uh, also, I have to pee and <laughs> muscle relaxant. So, oh, those many times that you've said those magic words to me, Jeff. <laughs> you know, you're like, ah, oh, it's like music to your ears. Um, yeah, I, you know, I got to admit, I'm, I'm eager as hell to, to to hunt up the 2001 stuff now. I mean, it's, it's always it's, been on the to-do list. But. Yeah, it's, but it really is. I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Kirby motherload. Kirby <laughs> fucking motherload. And, yeah, I'm, I'm such cliche. So I did Kirby, and then I did um, the start of Steve Englehart's Doctor Strange. Oh, man. Which I'd never read before. I haven't either. And, of course, uh, you know, I definitely remember someone in our comments thread was like, you've got to read Englehart's Doctor Strange. Oh, my God, do you, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's 70s Englehart at the point where he's kind of becoming the new agey guy who he was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get... It, it's spoilers, but it's also not spoilers because you know this shit happens. Mm-hmm. Um Doctor Strange killing the ancient one. Right. And then, like, the next issue opens with him crying over a lizard <laughs> because every life in the universe is so precious to him now that he's Sorcerer Supreme. Wow. It's just, yeah, oh, it's so good. <laughs> it actually took me a while to get into, mm-hmm. really weirdly. Um, but after, like, the first couple of issues, I was like, okay, I get it now. I forget, is it is it Bruner doing the art or is it Gene Colan? It's Bruner doing the art for like the first. I got the the, the Marvel Masterworks, mm, mm-hmm. which is like um, it's all the Marvel premiere issues, and then the first nine maybe of the the regular series. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Bruner doing the art through like issue four of the regular series, and then it's Colan. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just yeah, it's great stuff, but it it very much is the guy who wrote Captain America. Kind of becoming the guy who wrote Millennium. <laughs> well, I mean, that sounds, uh, when you put it like that, I'm like, done and done, you know, because, 
because it is interesting to see how those two overlap. And of course, you know, again, he was kind of, it is fascinating to think that Englehart was this guy who really had pretty incredible facility, or at least was super in tune with his readers during the 70s, because I remember his Doctor Strange run was acclaimed, his Batman run was acclaimed, you know, his Captain America and his Avengers runs were acclaimed. Um, it, it sort of makes sense. It, you can understand how you get the charmingly out-of-control egoist who is writing the descriptions of his fa- of the phases of his career at, at his own website. Oh, no, you totally can, because, I mean, Englehart pretty much started and really quickly became a fan favorite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not just a fan favorite, but someone who people were like, well, that's the definitive run of the character. Right. Exactly. And that for so long, like, because I am one of those who's like, you know, there may not be a definitive run of Green Lantern, but his is definitely one of the definitive runs of Green Lantern. Right. And his West Coast Avengers is, might be my definitive run of the, any Avengers book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, like, I really genuinely think that, you know, if you are... If people hold you in that high in esteem for so long, mm-hmm. you can kind of be forgiven for thinking that you are God's gift to everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because it, people have probably been telling you that for a really long time. For like, yeah, exactly. For like three or four decades now, you know? So, I don't know. It's 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 an amazing thing. So, uh, so wow. So, you read uh, Kirby's 2001 followed by Englehart's Doctor Strange. You must be in a very cosmic mindset now i'm in a very cosmic mindset jeff i'm very mellow (laughs) well uh i wanted to ask you um it's not the best segue but it's at least something have you are you reading uh final frontier online i I do not even know what final frontier is jeff why do you tell the listeners and me i will tell you both because uh i don't know why i didn't get um hip to this sooner uh, but interestingly enough, over the course of like a day or two last week, I think, uh, I saw a lot of references to it on my Twitter feed. Tom Scioli, who does Godland and also the just amazing Kirby Fest that was American Barbarian. If you go to his site, ambarb.com, and click on the comics tab, um, actually, if you go to ambarb.com, it'll throw you in like 50 pages into Final Frontier and you'll kind of not know what's going on. But if you click on the comics tab, you can jump to Final Frontier, see the first page. Uh, well, actually, the the cover that he's he's um, worked up, and it, Graham, I think that you know it's anyone who is a fan of kind of the of to me Marvel comics overall. But basically, Final Frontier starts off as being like the ultimate Fantastic Four. Uh, comic book in that the group um i I, I i'm reading as you're talking and it is shamelessly derivative in such a way that it is kind of like pop magic yeah it really is it is great it starts off with the final rooftop concert that the group slash band the final frontier are going to begin to play and they're playing it on on a building that actually looks like an enormous woman holding i don't know hula hoops rings i don't so it starts off if you can imagine like almost it threatens to mix the beatles with the fantastic four but well it actually says in the cover 
No yeah. wonder people call them the Beatles of superheroes. Yeah, exactly. But the thing that's amazing about the story uh, on so many levels, because it, it opens with that rooftop concert, and then the their final concert, the reason why the band is breaking up is, of course, two of the members are playing, uh, are playing, are getting married. So it's both, you know, it goes on to basically be a pastiche of the wedding of Reed and Sue Richards in the Fantastic Four mixed with, um, oh my God, uh, I'm never even going to, basically as they they blow their their first concert tones, end up drawing the attention of the Silver Surfer pastiche, who ends up- Who is so amazingly like- that's that's legally actionable. Let's be let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, he then who is then noticed by the Doctor Doom pastiche, who is Robot Dracula, who is then noticed by the Thor pastiche, who I don't remember uh, the name of. And so you have this whole sequence where all of these characters are coming together on top of uh, this rooftop. And in addition, like, there's actually a fun fact on, like, page eight, which is, like, fun fact. Did you know that there is a secret second Pentagon, the Star Chamber, that occasionally docks up top the more well-known Pentagon in Washington, D.C.? And it's great. He's got, like, a little, you know, you've got this enormous robo-starfish thing on top of the Pentagon lifting up. And, of course, that that becomes their equivalent to the shield helicarrier. Um and so it begins, it starts with the Fantastic Four, and it rapidly continues to blow up to become like a super, super love letter to all things Marvel. Whether that's, you know, a um, Jesus pastiche that is only referred to as, a, you know, one character's friend, you know, to the Captain America pastiche who at one point is, you know, doing everything in his power to capture one of the members of the final frontier um, because of the the problems that are being posed by the appearance of the cosmic silver surfer creature. It's just great, in other words, is what I'm saying. I think that you would adore it if you it's, read it. I, I, I've looked through it right now. You know what it oddly reminds me of as well? Uh, Scott, Scott Pilgrim. Interesting. Really? Yeah, it's like, what if, like, really early Marvel mm-hmm. somehow got infected by Scott Pilgrim? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just, yeah, there's something about it. It's really strong in Scott Pilgrim for me. Just looking through it right now, it sounds amazing, and it looks amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, people, go and read Final Frontier, like Jeff said. It looks really good. It is, it is really, really great. Uh, it will remind some of you people, like, it reminded me in some cases. I'm, it's interesting that you mentioned Scott Pilgrim. To me, it reminds me a lot of a lot of Mike Allred's work in some cases. Um, you know, it, I, I've I've told you my hilarious Mike Allred um, playing Stumptown, the Stumptown party story, right? No, that said, I have I had friends there who did not know who Mike Allred were, and no. they were like, "Who let this absolutely terrible Grateful Dead cover band?" Play? <laughs> You know, I take it back. You did tell me that. And that, of course, was fantastic. Uh, as somebody who actually sat through the Mike Allred's movie and had to listen to that musical soundtrack, at which put air quotes in there anywhere and everywhere around Wait, movies. There, there's a Mike Allred movie? Yeah, you didn't know the movie that he like uh, wrote, directed, and starred in? Oh, um, God, no, I did not know that. Not, by the way. Sounds oh. 
Yeah, it's it's like Astro-esque. I, I'm thinking it's the title. I'm going to have to... I apologize for the noise, listeners. No, I, I'm going to, type it to, I, I'm going to look it up as well, because that sounds terrible. That that sounds appalling. I mean, yeah. amazingly appalling. Yeah. Astro-esque. Uh, there from we go. 1996. So it's, mm-hmm. it's old. It is. It's an old film. Uh, Allred was super, super inspired by Robert Rodriguez's work, uh, especially his whole DIY aesthetic. So it has a ton of things somewhat similar. Like if you remember El Mariachi, Rodriguez's debut, and you managed to suck out a huge chunk of the energy and a certain amount of the talent, you get something a lot like Astro-esque. Um, Allred himself, who plays the mysterious character in there, uh, is kind of okay. Like, he's sort of a, you know, kind of a weirdo man to fell to earth, but Jesus, you know, figure. Um, I'm, I'm glad he cleared that up. Yes. You know I the problem with the man to fell to earth? It's not Jesus-y enough. Yeah, exactly. You got to up the Jesus-y and also maybe the sludgy jam guitar playing, you know. Um, but the the other members of the cast are, are actually really terrible. So it's it's incredibly hard to take seriously. There's a couple of just absolutely gorgeous shots and surprisingly well-filmed shots and so much slow motion sludge work. It's, it is an unbelievable chore to work your way through, at least I always thought. Um but, but you did uh, it. I'm so glad you did it for us. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did years and years ago, and I'm not. I wish I could. I could uh, offer people a better review of it. But, um, but so having having sat through the torture that is Astroesque, it's nice to know that someone else uh, also finds uh, Matt Allred musical skills a little on the appallingly bad side. So you know, just because I. It was that thing of like, I'm being tortured, but I'm being tortured all alone and nobody else seems to feel this pain. Because out on the internet, I mean, admittedly, this was 97 or 98 that I think I saw it. Um, you know, I, I think his 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 core fandom was enough that people were like, it's great. Oh, my God, this is so good. You know, um, Mike Howard is one of those creators where like, it's not enough to like him. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like his fans are really hardcore. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, you know, isn't surprising. I mean, isn't that the way, like, once you get above a certain level of, um, I don't know, except once you make a name for yourself, don't don't your fans almost by virtue have to be sort of amazingly hardcore, at least until they get driven out of the marketplace? Really? Do you think? I, I, that's possibly true. That makes me kind of sad if that's the case. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just like the idea of like liking someone. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like just being like their work's good, but not right. being like I automatically love everything they do. Yeah, but I f- I do feel like people have that situation, and and I mean in a way it's I don't know it's really helpful I guess you know because it helps those creators. When you've got somebody that, that's that hardcore behind you, you can pretty much do whatever you want in that sense. And and if you do it right, you break through, I think, to the next level. And if you don't, you become Matt Wagner. You know what I mean? Oh, that's um, that's sad on several million levels. <laughs> well, I have to say, I don't know if you I, – I haven't been checking in on it very closely. And I have to it, admit that it's a site – that I quite like, 
but don't follow as closely as I should. But Hooded Utilitarian is doing its its anniversary of hate and uh, where people are basically encouraged just to write, you know, about things they don't like about comics, you know. Uh, uh, I love that so much. I can't tell you how much I like that. It's really good because a lot of people uh, that I've seen are taking it very seriously. They're like, I'm not just going to talk about this like, you know, as as an attempt to troll. I'm talking about something that is bad and and, you know, sort of in many cases, damagingly so. And uh, I think it was Jason Militich. I totally apologize for screwing up Jason's uh, last name, wrote a great comparison talking about the two basically how he loves the first Batman Grendel crossover and how the second thing is one of the worst things that he's ever read. And he talks about basically why Batman slash Grendel two sucks. And also how it sort of shows, I think a little bit in a way, kind of the ending of, you know, uh, this sort of trajectory that you kind of see for these guys um, in terms of they go, they go so far and then if they, if they just sort of start to get complacent, then they just end up being kind of stuck in a rut, I think, you know? And I feel that way about Wagner. Wagner doesn't really seem to have, you know, for a guy who started out with so much potential and is still incredibly, I mean, I know, you know, Hibbs still loves the guy and loves the guy's work, but he's not, he's certainly not who he used to be. You know what I mean? Um, Which of us are, Jeff? Well, that is true. That is true. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I kind of get that. Do you think the, the reason you're saying he's not who he used to be is because he is who he used to be? Does that uh, make sense? Do, right. do you think it's because he's not pushed himself enough? That's what I would say. I would say that the ways that he went about pushing himself were in these real... Um, what seemed like very daring ways, but actually I feel like ended up being very ordinary ways, you know, like Wagner was really uh, incredibly experimental and ambitious, even when he moved from being a writer artist to a writer who had other people illustrate his work. But I think at some point he became like that transition somehow limited the scope of what he was willing to do and what he was willing to try, you know? Um, I have been writing for the internet too much because you were like, even when he transitioned from a writer artist to, and I was going to go, a whore? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I think you're... I think you're right, but I kind of want to disagree with it mm-hmm. in principle, but I couldn't tell you why. I think part well, of me just wants to be like, it doesn't have to be like that. Right. Well, or it might be, or rather, I mean, more to the point, I think a lot of people would say that it's almost, it's, it, you know, that it's six of one, half dozen of another. You know what I mean? Like you can, you can look at guys like, you know, look at someone like Dave Sim, who apparently has done everything absolutely entirely his own way. And he, there's still a certain amount of, He's not really quite the figure that he used to be, at least in the marketplace. And that's the same whether you're John Byrne or Matt Wagner or Dave Sim, you know, like maybe there's just kind of that shelf life where after, excuse me, 15, 20 years, 30 years of work, 
there's just I don't know you, you know everyone knows what they're getting because they've gotten so much of it before that it it kind of it it feels weird you know it feels run out that things had run their course even if maybe they haven't you know um I, I this has been on my mind a little bit because I you know we comics experience finally got copies of love and rockets uh new stories volume five mm-hmm. and honestly i don't when i say finally i don't think that they were any farther behind than other comic book stores but i know there are people who have been have read this since had access to it prob i'm assuming since san diego so uh and reading it w- was of is very strange for me because you know jaime had done such an amazing wrap-up uh in so many ways of the Maggie story with issues three and four and here in issue five, I think he actually, he takes one of his sub characters, throws in some more sub characters and he's back basically telling different stories that are completely 100% tonally the same. And I actually enjoyed his contributions to this book a lot. There's a huge chunk in the middle. That's Gilbert Hernandez's stuff. And I'm like, I can't tell if Gilbert Hernandez has lost his mind or not. You know, like on the one hand, I think... Oh, but to be fair, do you not think he's been there for a while? Well, exactly. I mean, exactly. Hernandez has been turning out work, you know, while heading way... Like, he's he's basically pointed the car at, you know, the destination outsider art and has been stomping on the gas, it feels like, for... 5, 10, 15 years, you know, so, but this was the first issue where I was really like, I, well, it's not the first issue, it was... Oh, you you don't think the last issue was kind of really weird dissonance, where, like, holy shit, Jaime Hernandez is amazing, that's such a fulfilling emotional experience, it's so subtle, it's so beautifully illustrated, and right. here's a story where Gilbert says he likes big tits. right. Right. Well, uh, and, yeah. Like, that is my experience of Love and Rockets because I only got into it like two years ago. Uh-huh, Do you right. know what I mean? So it's like, mm-hmm. here's Locust and I'm reading Locust and I'm like, it starts off, you know, good. And then it gets amazing. And my mind is yes. like, holy shit. Okay, I'm going to read some of Gilbert's stuff. Oh. <laughs> well, to be fair, I feel that uh, as somebody, God, who is reading reading Love and Rockets for a long time now, um, there's always been kind of that slight schism. I mean, you know, Jaime Hernandez is really uh, arguably a once-in-a-generation talent. So it's fascinating seeing, you know, Gilbert <laughs> it's and to unfair, a certain extent it's un- Mario. to compare the other Hernandez brothers to? A, a little bit. I mean, could, well, let's put it this way. At least back in the day, I feel like it, it, it used to be the, you know, the a really simple and even as you said it you knew that it was a cheap dichotomy but you used to it you know i could pick up an issue of love and rockets and kind of be like okay i'm reading Jaime's for this the 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 art and and the characters and i'm reading gilbert's for the storytelling and the characters and what's fascinating to me is i feel that um Gilbert has gone through periods in his life where he's basically it's like he's taken a, a torch to the to the bubbling pot that is his work and has done his best to boil out 
regular story signifiers or characters like a lot of the stuff that i i complain about like when morrison's doing stuff in something like batman r.i.p it doesn't really strike me as anything that you know i i found it confounding and it didn't complete the dots for me in terms of where the stories were or what the character arcs were but i also felt like it wasn't necessarily that original either because i i think that gilbert hernandez has spent a much longer time figuring out how to make amazing you know scene to scene transitions or panel to panel juxtapositions that just knock you sideways and or challenge your beliefs in what constitutes a story or what kind of emotional need that you get out of it. But, but also I think that, that Gilbert Hernandez Beto is aiming more toward the R crumb, you know, uh, solar system, I guess. Oh no. Yeah. I I think that's a really, really appropriate thing to say. Yeah. So he definitely seems to me to be spending a lot of time um both indulging in and studying his fetishes um but he but unlike crumb where crumb does it through you know from from a autobiographical lens gilbert does it through this you know scrim of storytelling and character that is fascinating i mean it really does remind me the last couple of years have it reminded me of um when you tried to read the the stories that Henry Darger wrote about the the Vivian girls along with the along with the amazing art that he created it's like you're like holy cow i can't wait to read this and like within like i don't know you know two chapters you're like oh my god this is barely storytelling at all it's just it's like a it's like an obsessive hand washing you know in disguised as fiction and i think i think that's incredibly reductive to say about Beto Beto stuff, but there's, it's far closer to it than I, I feel sometimes than I think there's times when I pick it up and I'm like, nah, he's just mimicking that or no, he's doing something at some level that I just can't fathom because he's mm-hmm. that talented a guy. And then there's other times where I'm just like, Jesus Christ, I can't, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, completely fascinated with this guy's obsessiveness and i don't know quite how to like you see him at conventions and stuff and 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 he is absolutely 100 percent uh a, a smart lucid intelligent guy um and, and so i very much believe that whatever he's doing he's doing quite consciously it's a conscious commitment to do the work at this level but it is also baffling and in some cases terrifying because it's so baffling to me you know Mm -hmm. so because unlike something like jim woodring who i think woodring is always able to give you the contextual framework by which you can see a particular piece of his work i feel that that the closest thing you have to that with gilbert is that it's gilbert hernandez and that's you know, on the one hand, it's kind of like the true mark of an artist because it's like nobody else could have really done this in a way. And, and, and have, but at the same time, I'm also like utterly like, can't I just can't I just read this book and 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 get to a more 
simple, satisfying reaction. You know, it's always Gilbert Hernandez's work to me is always, I always feel like internally I'm, I don't know, juggling nitroglycerin, you know, so blah, blah, blue, blue, blue. And so, yeah, Matt Wagner, Kirby, any of those guys, you keep them going long enough. They hit a period, I guess, where they're either where if you follow them enough, I think at a certain point you you find them more dismissible than you really should because what they're doing is stuff that is that only later you realize is awesome or or alternately you don't, you know. But, well, yeah, I mean, that, that's always worth bearing in mm-hmm. mind. There are just times where people just kind of poop out. Well, not even poop out, but go their own way and their own way is not where you want to follow them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, right. And, and we, to be honest, I think almost every creator I have completely, like, madly fallen in love with, mm-hmm. that's happened. I can't think of one creator who has a significant body of work. Right. Has where you're not, still on board. Yeah. Has not – there's not been a time where I've been like, that's great and you're doing that really well. Like even Brandon mm-hmm. Graham, whose stuff I only discovered, what, five years ago? Right. Like with Profit, I'm like, that's – you know, I can tell that's really good. It's mm-hmm. totally not where I want to see you go. Like, the only person I can vaguely think is Kevin Huizenga. And even then, that kind of feels unfair because it feels to me like he's such a, still a new talent. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I, I kind of have that thing of, like, Huizenga is still sort of in his – what still feels recognizably as his ascendancy, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but almost everyone I, else, there's been a period where I've been like, I am so in love with this person's work. I cannot imagine ever not feeling 100% on board with what they do. Right. And then, you know, they'll do something and I'll be like, I feel really guilty for not liking this. There must be something wrong with me. And then you realize, no, it's just not what I want to read. So let me ask you this, because I, I think that maybe you and I are on very much and might be on the same page on this. Are you a little nervous about uh, Graham's upcoming multiple warheads? Uh, not so much. I really mm. like the the multiple warheads one shot mm. did years mm-hmm. and years ago. Like, I really liked, as in I think I like, I think I prefer it to King City. Like, mm. uh, And so if it's more of that, mm-hmm. completely on board. Mm-hmm. Um. If it's not, we'll see. Mm-hmm. But based on the multiple warriors I've seen, and knowing that it's not, like knowing that he's been working on it for this for a long fucking time, like yes. before it was even an image back when I was at Oni. Because mm-hmm. I remember talking to people at Oni about this years ago. I mean, right. two or three years ago, talking about this mm-hmm. series. So, but way, I think I'm going to at least like the first couple of issues. <laughs> we'll mm-hmm. see. We'll see if like midway through, there's, there's a period where I'm like, ah, Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, that's good. Why, I'm glad. Why are you nervous? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I think, you know, I, unlike everyone else, and by, by which, at least in this case, I certainly mean you, I adored King City, picked up the multiple warheads one shot, and I remember thinking it was kind of okay, but it didn't quite gel with me in the same way. Um, and I don't know. There's just something where I, I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll love multiple warheads. Well, I say sure, but I have air quotes around that because exactly. part of me is also a little hand ringy. Like, what if I don't like it? What if I don't like it? What if I don't like uh, Brian Leo Malley's seconds? You know, which that, no, that, that's one I am very nervous about not liking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, that's one where a lot of the stuff that has come out, I don't know. Actually, of course, part of me was once I found out that it was set in a restaurant or that it centered around a restaurant, I was like, oh, okay, I'll be okay with this then, you know? Really? That's interesting. I um, I just get – here's the weird thing. I get really nervous with seconds because mm-hmm. I get really – I get worried that – Brian Liam Alley's facetiousness from his Twitter account, which it's right. funny to me, is mm-hmm. somehow going to spill into the work. I have no idea what that mm-hmm. is at all. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, because I, I feel like he was doing that before the last Scott Pilgrim book, which for me was the most honest and emotional one. Yes, but for some yeah. reason, I'm just yeah. worried that like mm-hmm. the same unending level of sarcasm and and self parody, uh, but. Like self parody beyond self parody. Self parody mm-hmm. is the point where it becomes parodying the people who engage with him. Right. Um, I'm worried that that is going to be the tone of seconds for some reason, and that makes me really nervous. Because it's like I don't want to read a book where the tone is practice disdain. Hmm. Hmm. Well, yeah, I kind of yeah, I know what you mean. I don't. I kind of get the sense. Well, I don't know. Yeah, that is I mean that is true. I definitely got to the point where I was like, okay, I have to I have to unfollow this person on Twitter because this is just not it's it's doing some damage for my ability to uh appreciate it. Oh, can you hold on one second? It's again. Yeah, hold. On. See, now we have no idea what's going on when he said, "Can you hold on one second? Someone might be at the door or Edie might be saying, you can't say that about Brian Lee O'Malley. What if he listens to the show and he's really upset that you've stopped following him on Twitter? We have no idea. It, it's a mystery. And it's going to be a mystery for me as well, because it's not like he's just going to come back on and tell me. And then by the time we stop recording, I'll have forgotten this even happened. It's, it's a problem. And the best part is, later on when Jeff is editing this, he will hear me say all of this. And possibly, if we're lucky, and Jeff, I'm making a request to you right now to do this, why don't you cut in right now and tell us what is actually happening while you're well, away? What what actually was happening? Oh, you were actually answering. <laughs> uh, what was actually happening was uh, uh, Edie had something that she sort of brought out to show me because she was super excited about it. And it was literally one of those things that I couldn't, you know, when you do that thing and you're kind of like, ah, it's great. It actually needed a moment for me to, to put you on mute and be like, wow, that's amazing looking, you know, Um but I kind of felt bad because even as soon as she brought it in, I was like, ah, uh-huh. And I, I, I think I missed your, your, your penultimate point before yeah, I can't whatever it was you were saying. My penultimate point was. Uh, well, okay. We talked – I talked about being nervous about Graham, but you, uh, Brandon Graham stuff. You're, we were also talking about being nervous about seconds. Yes, you're which we both are. That you yeah. um, follow, ceased to follow. Yeah. The O'Malley on Twitter because of for the same reason that I'm nervous about seconds. The same reason that the the um, the persona that he is mm-hmm. uh, what projecting, I guess, is the word uh, yeah. on Twitter is is weirdly off-putting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it yeah, it is. I don't know. There were times when. It, and every once in a while I'll pop up in my Twitter feed when somebody retweets him, he'll have things that are just, you know, he's got such an incredibly clever and sharp mind. But uh, at the same time, I also find myself 
you know, somehow the context of all the rest of the stuff is just like, okay, I can't, I can't take any more ironic or non-ironic Scott Pilgrim baiting, you know, like, I'm just like, it just, it, yeah, I, I really found myself having to disengage from who he was and, and here's on Twitter or who he pre- presents himself That's as. That's just it. Because do you mm-hmm. not feel that a lot of it is him trying to deal with Scott Pilgrim? Because, mm-hmm. you know, what that was was a massive thing. And if I were the guy who created that and mm-hmm. stopped and had to do something else, I would be freaking out. Yeah. yeah. Because the level of expectation is unreal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well and i think that's sort of what he seems to be doing if there's anything that he seems m- most focused on mocking it's expectation you know? yeah Ex- but expectation in so many ways that it mm-hmm. dilutes it if that makes sense it's no i agree he's mocking not only the expectation for what he's doing next but somehow also mocking the expectation of of people who enjoyed the work in the first place Mm-hmm. feel some ownership over it yeah yeah right which is fine sort of i mean it's, and that's the problem it's fine to a point yeah you know and it becomes kind of dickish right dickish and a little bit ill-informed i guess you know i mean because i think there is that thing of there, I mean, there is that thing. Like, once you release a creative piece out into the world, it becomes the world's just as much as it does yours. Yeah. You know? So the purpose of a creative piece, or even not a creative piece, like, because I'm not sure if I'd call this podcast creative. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if i call, like, what I do for a living creative. But when you release something into the world like that, mm-hmm. asking people to engage with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they engage favorably or unfavorably or fanatically um, or like one of the dogs just did, keep, and you keep talking. Yes. They're just going to keep barking. It's fine. Okay. Uh, it does strike me as um, uh, yeah. It's just part and parcel of the deal. I don't necessarily um, I don't know. You know, I mean, I think that's part of the the thing where it's like the frustration about having our podcast or writing the re- reviews that we write or the piece the opinion pieces is just like it's it's out there to be shared and it's hard when somebody if it if you're actually writing a piece god what was it there was there was some comic that i was reading where what somebody actually said something like well of course critics are just failures uh and i was like really yeah and i was like wait what the oh, hell was that wow uh-huh and let me see if i can figure out where the hell that was oh you know i think it was in the gilbert hernandez piece um because of course he's in this weird zone where, uh, I, if if I'm understanding the main story in Love and Rockets issue five, part of what you see, like the scenes flip back and forth between two different sets of characters, and the very weird, odd, goofy stuff done with one set of characters may very well end up being the movie reinterpretation of the characters uh, of the Palomar characters, the heartbreak soup characters. Really? Did he not do that in three and four? Am I? Well, well, his no. Well, and seeing this is it. I, I don't, God, I would have to pull down three and four and look, he's for a long time. Now he's been toying with 
by having a character who's like a, a you know sort of sub B movie actress uh, have her pop up in stories where that are actually the movies themselves. Those are the separate collected hardcover books yeah, that I yeah. think have been coming out from. Dark Horse and Fantagraphics. Meanwhile, she continues to be a character in Love and Rockets, and you hear more and more stuff about the movies that she's doing. So at one point, she does a movie that, you know, she helps create that is based on the stories, her interpretations of the stories that she heard about Palomar. Um, and so consequently, they're all kind of, you know, they're kind of a mess. They're kind of not really real at all, you know, um, in, in a way that's, you know, sort of could be just be sort of comically bad, like, a you know, like the reenactments in like, uh, you know, Wes Anderson's Rushmore or something like that. But they're also way more weird and surreal. And at one point, uh, her daughter, who's in Palomar to sort of do research about what the town's really like, mentions the fact that, you know, her her mom did this movie and and that it wasn't really well received and somebody does say something like well of course all critics are you know not all but most critics are failures and it was just kind of like wow that's who boy you know I, I wouldn't necessarily i'm not sure that i would agree with that you know what i mean um and yet it seems to be sort of this de facto it's it's just something i feel like it's something you should never say even if you think <laughs> No, but you know what well, I mean? It, like, I feel like it's one of those things that just comes across as so weirdly defensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like you can't... I feel like it's saying, of course, anyone who disagrees with me is just a dick. Right. Right. Like, preemptively. Which right. almost... Almost sort of has this implication of, and that gives me license to be a douche. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, like, all, of course, all critics are failures. feels like it's, it's license for him not to try. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. like I'm following the news, and you just don't get it. Right, exactly. Which is which is a way that's like incredibly frustrating. I need to find the page to make sure that it's not something that I just totally hallucinated. It'd be, it'd be awesome if he doesn't say it at all. Like, I, I know the actual just... line is like, "All critics are well, th- you know, thoughtful people who really, really work hard." And you were just having like a really bad day. <laughs> exactly. Except for Jeff Lester, I'm like, oh, that's what the panel says. Except for me. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, okay, let me, where the hell am I going to find this? Um, I, I do think that at a certain point though, more often than I think you would like, ultimately, you know, (laughs) the marriage of the creator and the audience, um, which produces this art in the world, uh, at some point it becomes an unhappy marriage or it's just like, a miserable divorce, you know, where the creator is kind of the, the parent that's always talking shit about the other one. Uh, or or it, vice versa, let's be fair. Yeah, or vice versa. And the fact is, is that they they still have shared custody of this child, essentially. So um, where am I going to find that thing? So, Grant, talk about some other stuff for a while while I try and find this. <laughs> talk about something while I try and find this. What else did you read? Did you uh, read other else? What's no, going on in news? News stuff? Should we <laughs> talk about news? Well, um, Robert Kirkman and Tony Moore settled their lawsuit. Or lawsuit. Yeah, that's, suits, yeah. That's kind of interesting. Um, which was, yeah, it's incredibly frustrating for the nosy bastard that is me, of course. Because mm-hmm. they're like, we're never going to tell you what the settlement is. Uh, more, much more up to date. Did you see the Mark Miller news today? Yeah, that thing about Fox. 
yeah, Mark Miller is essentially going to be Joss Whedon for Fox's Marvel movies. Well done, Mark Miller. Yeah, seriously. How you managed to do that, fuck knows. But well done. <laughs> Actually, what am I saying? I know how he managed to do it. He did it through Matthew Vaughn, didn't he? Because Matthew Vaughn's in with Fox for... for right, um, for the X-Men for the X-Men movies, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, well, good good work. That's That's a really good job of having your cake and eating it. I think so. I mean, sort of. I'm, I'm not. Do you not think it's very like I'm not going to work with Marvel anymore? I'm an independent guy, creator owned all the way, apart from in movies. Right. Well, uh, I, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think it's it's sort of a certain smart differential. I mean, I suppose he kind of might have even been able to pitch it to Fox, or Vaughn pitched it to Fox as like, "Hey, this is a guy who's not writing for Marvel anymore, but was incredibly but was responsible for the best-selling Marvel comic of the last ten years." Right. Exactly. You know, and around whom like big chunks of the Avengers film are you know, based around his reconception, whether you believe that or not, mind you. Um, hey, talking about Avengers, did you see the uh, thing I'm bleeding cool about the price point of the Ultimate Avengers collection? Yeah. Um, holy it, shit, right? Holy mother of fuck. People, for those who don't know what we're talking about, um, Ultimate Avengers has gone on pre-order on Amazon. Bear in mind all the caveats. It's Amazon pre-order, which has very often turned out to be wrong, and listening books that don't actually... Um, right. Because the book has not been officially solicited yet, Marvel can change anything in a solicit, theoretically. However, mm-hmm. what's there right now is that the collection of the, the first collection of Ultimate Avengers is going to be four issues and it's going to be twenty four ninety five, which breaks down something like six ninety an issue. Right. Which is astounding. <laughs> astounding. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. I am. I am gobsmacked at that mm-hmm. also utterly unsurprised right it really sort of those things where you're like i can't believe it but i actually completely can well i can too I, what i would be fascinated by if it if it is a legit thing by marvel that's on the table is seeing if they present it as a this is i should buy the, the single issues exactly Exactly. And, and also sort of a reassurance to retailers, because retailers being like, why should I order, you know, nine kajillion copies of Uncanny Avengers? Because I won't have the time to be able to sell them by the time the trade is out if I buy too many. And they'll be like, not a problem. You know, <laughs> we're going to price the, the volume for it at, you know, 25 bucks. We're going to soak as many people as we can and libraries for that copy. And then, you know, not a great point on Bleeding Cool mm-hmm. where they said what used to be the trade waiting is the new comic buying mm-hmm. it's now waiting for the comicsology 99 cent sale is the-, <laughs> is the new trade wait yeah that's really funny because I have to um, say, when um, Marvel did their Thanos 99 cent sale this past weekend mm-hmm. I was kind of tempted I was more tempted than I should have been I, I know what you mean, especially because I'm boycotting those bastards. I'm boycotting them, but if they had had those two issues of Thanos Quest at 99 cents a pop, I totally would have been like, what am I going to do? You know, so... You're okay. It, what, yeah. Did you even... Did you look at what was in the sale? Yeah, it was a very odd sale, wasn't it? It was like, so it's 99 cents apart from these collections, which are twelve ninety nine. Yeah, exactly. Which is where the, like, well, if I wanted to buy, you know the the 
if I didn't already have access to those Engelhart Silver Surfers and I wanted my Thanos quest as part of one big twelve ninety nine trade, done and done. But I was like, that's not really a sale. Also, the fact that they were like, well, you know, Infinity Gauntlet sells way too well. We can't put that on sale. But nobody's really nibbling at Infinity War. Um, and- or Infinity Crusade. And Infinity Crusade, which is the one I always blank on. So, you know, let's put those up at 99 cents an issue. To me, there's something like, you're going to put those on sale, but you're not going to put Infinity Gauntlet? I mean, it's, on the one hand, it's savvy, but it's also kind of cheap, it, I suppose. Yeah, it's a cross between savvy and shitty, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Because um, I do know there's a lot of stuff that's sort of... I came, you know, I spent a lot of time staring at Dynamite's Project Superpowers um, omnibus that is like sixteen ninety nine, mm-hmm. you know, for like something crazy, like five hundred and five pages or something. Yeah, like that. It's it's, a, it's all of it. Yeah, it's like eighteen, nineteen issues of of material, and I'm like, okay, that's a really, really low price point, and I did almost buy it just out of interest. It, it's just part of me was like. Ah, uh, but that's, you know, kind of this cross between a. What if that sucks? And also, just sort of, um, despite liking Earth X, I can't really say that there's a lot of other stuff by Ross, and uh, especially when he's working with Kruger, that I find especially interesting. I suppose I found the first series of Project Superheroes really interesting. Mm-hmm. I found the second series really frustrating, and. I would have actually told you not to buy it because they didn't do whatever I guess was going to be the third series. Wow! So, so the story is unfinished for all intents and really? purposes. Yeah. I wonder if that's the other reason why they're dumping it at such a low price. It's like, well, we're never going to really be able to, you know, move these collections in any numbers unless you get, you know, unless you get dupes like Jeff. Yeah, it's a really, really <laughs> weird thing because you know it. Quite clearly, the story was not done. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, I mean, the story of the series is done, mm-hmm. but it's like mm-hmm. the greater arc, you know, we are maybe at the end of the second arc, the second act. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there was no third act. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, on the one hand, I guess if it's not selling, it's not selling. I mean, there was definitely that stage, it seemed like, with their, you know, their Earth X. Thing seemed to have diminishing returns as far as the sales go. And I remember when the, you know, it seemed like the last issues of Paradise X were coming out. It really seemed like nobody had any enthusiasm for them. I could be wrong, but even the creators were just like, yeah, we thought this would be awesome, but, you know, considering. But it's, it's only not, like, and now we've just got to get it done. Well, yeah, just sort of like now that there's, now that there's only 8,000 of you buying it, we're kind of, we don't really care, and we don't think you care, and nobody's talking about it. But yeah, we, we're committed to doing the next 300 pages of this so that it's complete. It, it, sometimes it feels, it looks like a chore work. You know, it feels like chore work. So. That, um, that is kind of weird, isn't it? I, I, I've never really thought about. What's the mindset of creators got to be when you like you set out on this? You know, this is going to be great, and you have a definitive ending planned. Mm-hmm. On route, you realize no one cares, right? Or right, not exactly. enough people care. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's got to be. I can't even imagine what that'd be like. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, and, and what's your definition of how much do they care? Do they care enough? I mean, you know, when you've got that thing of like, I'm, you know, I, I hope and assume that fraction, uh, has, and, uh, the boss have enough or the ba, I guess, have enough faith in Casanova and enough passion for it that'll keep going, but it's still not necessarily, setting the world on fire and considering you mentioned that fraction was talking about doing seven books, one for each one of the sins. I mean, that seems kind of, uh, you know, it, I, I can imagine <laughs> what's that. It seems bold. Well, bold. I, it, it, it's a bold plan mm-hmm. in, at all. It's incredibly mm-hmm. bold when your third series sells terrible. Yeah, exactly. When your third series sells bat, that is, um, at, at such unassuming levels as it is, there it is hard not to be like, okay, well, shit, I promise that maybe I could do the last three sins as standalone books. I don't know, you know. I mean, it's, uh, oh, oh, you for all we know, it's gonna sell like gangbusters in Europe, right? And you know, yeah. it's, it's going to he will completely get the rewards he deserves for it, or or they yeah. should I should say. Um. Wait, who knows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, maybe it's not about that. Maybe he's just like, I have to tell this story. Like that's that's the sure. that's the pure version. That's the version we all want to believe. Yeah. The 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 person's like, yeah, I've got to tell this story one way or the other. And I and the thing that's interesting is I I think we're used to seeing comics be that, you know, for such a long time, if you were doing, especially if you're doing comics outside the big two, there was very little chance that you were going to see some sort of, you know, substantial financial reward. So the only reason why you cranked them out was because you were passionate about comics or you were passionate about the freedom you had, or you were passionate about the story, you know, lots of people who are just like, okay, well, it doesn't, doesn't matter that according to, you know, my publisher, there's only 3,000 people buying eight ball. I'm going to continue telling this story, you know, about these two girls. And then the next thing you know, like your career has totally, you know, flipped around. Yeah. Um, is a totally different thing. But yeah, I do feel, you know, as long as we mentioned Fraction, and it was hilarious to me that we didn't really think to mention him during the 100th podcast and, and kind of like the whole like, oh, yeah, the fraction stocking. Wow, we haven't done that in a while kind of thing. Um, he Wait, has, didn't, we, didn't we talk about FF? Uh, I guess we talked about FF, but it was kind of like, well, we're not plussed about it. You yeah, know exactly. what I mean? Yeah, it, that, that's a book. Yeah, that's a book. That's a book and that's a thing. But it's not qu- kind of quite at that same level where you're, you know, we're kind of like, yeah, but if you look at his FF Tumblr, you actually see the number of panels that he's chosen. All incidentally be, you know, whenever Ben Grimm's talking about suicide. Do you think that's meaningful? You know what I mean? Like, we just haven't done anything oh God, like that. Would it not be so absolutely spectacular if his <laughs> FF is like Casanova? Like, it's just for Mr. Governor, it's like, hey, Stretch, I hate this job. I can't believe I got to get up every day and do this. <laughs> that, that actually would be kind of great. That would be kind of great. In fact, I wish we had the Photoshop skills because it would be awesome to take uh, an issue of a Lee Kirby Fantastic Four and put the panels and dialogue balloons from, from Casanova over it. You know? Yeah, no, that would be very like, funny. <laughs> Um, anyway, I, since you read your text page, the, the Kirby thing, 
I thought that I would take the time to read this letter from Matt Fraction that he wrote to that's it that's published in Love and Rockets number five. Oh, um, go yeah. ahead. I'm sure I'm sure he loved it. Yes. Hi, me. Hi there. I wanted to drop you a quick line to tell you how stellar the conclusion is to the love bunglers in Love and Rockets number four. Last year, your story made me gasp out loud, which had never happened to me before while reading a comic book. And this year, I actually teared up, which also has never happened before. And I've been thinking about the story ever since. When I started reading Love and Rockets, I was like Maggie. I was living like Maggie was living and probably about the same age she was. I was a post-punk rock kid crashing on futons, drinking and going to shows and getting to all kinds of trouble to great soundtracks and terrible girlfriends. And last night, as my wife and two kids slept around me, I looked at the sag underneath Maggie's chin, the bags underneath Ray's eyes, and I felt all that history wash over me of feeling not old exactly, but like an adult of growing up alongside these characters you've crafted, of loving them all so much and wanting that last panel for them so very badly. It was perfect. As thankless and tiring and fucking infuriating as comics can be, thank you so much for your work. We met in Portland a couple years ago. I write Uncanny X-Men and Iron Man and Thor, and I gave you guys copies of my creator-owned book, Casanova. You and Gilbert remain unending inspirations, as weird as that may sound from the Thor guy or whatever. Anyway, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Matt Fraction. Aww. Yeah, that's kind of what I did. I was like, aww. So I thought that that would be kind of a nice thing to throw into the podcast, you know? Um, the fact that both of us like kind of wants to just like rub his head and be like, oh, yeah, kind of like, ah, like, oh, he's happy, you know. But also, there's part of me that unfortunately I really am so run down thanks to muscle relaxants that I can't quite focus enough on the. I'm like, or we could talk about, you know, referring to comics as fucking infuriating, which I think is, you know, great. oh, no, I, I think that's, I think that stands by itself. I, I, could you not see why you'd say that? I, Oh, I totally can see why he say, says it, but let's put it this way. Is the reason why Fraction's saying that for this, you know, is he saying it for the Love and Rockets reasons or is he saying it for the Thor guy or whatever reasons, you know? Or are they both? I assume that they're very different reasons. I, would, I honestly would assume he was saying it for the Thor reasons, but no, that's not true. I would assume he's saying it because if you achieve a certain amount of fame, quote-unquote, in comics, mm-hmm. you also mm-hmm. achieve a certain amount of... Um, dickishness, by, by which I mean not you become a dick, but you attract dicks. Right. Um, right. And even, you know, whoever does whatever comic and has the time of their life doing it and never has anything go wrong with their work ever mm-hmm. are still going to have to deal with an incredible amount of frustrating people who have reactions to that work. Right. Like that that was that was my immediate reaction to, to that. That like just the, the, the process of making comics can be frustrating in and of itself, but then the frustration of people reacting and reading mm-hmm. stuff in would mm-hmm. be infinitely more frustrating. Yeah, I think so too. Um which I like I said kind of gets back to that whole strange like you know, hey mom and dad, it's you know st- like try and behave around the child, which is going to be sleeping over at you know, dad the dad dad the reader as opposed to mom the creator's house this weekend. I don't know. I'm I obviously I didn't have enough muscle relaxants. Like, just, like 
I had a, one or two of them enough to actually stop making sense, but not actually start being entertaining, which is kind of <laughs> I honestly feel like enough to stop making sense, not enough to start being entertaining should be the new motto of this podcast. <laughs> episode, episode 101 forward, people. That's our new. <laughs> That's right. That's what you can tune in for. I should also mention, God, I love new Dead Guardians. I thought, I thought you this keep telling me that. I still haven't read it. I know. Well, I, which is amazing. Can't you get on the stick? Like I, I'm always fascinated by your magic Can, freebie trade. Can't trait. you get on the stick? Uh, I never ask for freebie. That's I know. That's what I'm saying. Like you never ask for them, and then they just sort of show up in the mail. So there's kind of the, just this weird, random, like. I don't know, maybe someday you're going to get a package from DC and you're going to open it up and it's just going to be like a human hand in there. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't know. That's what's going to happen after they hear this podcast and they're like, what, do you think that no one's paying attention to the New 52? (laughs) Here is Paul Jenkins' hand. You probably wondered why he's not writing for us anymore. (laughs) It's because he has no hand, you bastards. Are you happy? Are you? Did you see the birth the creator on... Crap, was it Newsarama? Uh, who draws comics who with their mouth? Th- this that. is not a joke. It sounds like I said it for a joke, and it's really not. It's a creator who like draws and letters and colors comics with their mouth. And the comics look amazing. Huh. Um, no, this was covered, you said, where? I want to say it's on I... the front page of Newsarama. I, but this is when I discovered that I'm completely making shit up. That would be great. You're like, huh, it's not there anymore. I'm sure it was there. Nope. Uh, Stabled artist writes, draws, and letters comic by mouth. Wow. It's fantastic. Laramie or Larim Taylor. Yeah. It's just, Hmm. it's amazing. Hmm. So yeah, he he went on Kickstarter to basically get funding for his comic. And his comic looks great. Like, he draws it with his mouth. Holy shit. (laughs) Oh, crap. I just realized this weekend is MorrisonCon, isn't it? Yes, it is. Starting tomorrow. Wow. Which means by the time this comes out, it will have happened. And the comic industry will be entirely different. Yes, nothing will be the same. Um, I, I'm, I always feel bad when I snark on it because mm-hmm. I'm friends with people who are, who are throwing it. But right. um, seeing someone tweet the other day that here's some exclusive swag that you'll get from it. And it was a mm-hmm. tote bag and a variant cover of Happy. <laughs> I was kind of like, really? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I, I, again, I'm going to say it. I really hope it lives up to expectations, but I am also really glad that I didn't go. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I, I, I do have, like, if you ever have one of those, like, you know, those people who wish they were invisible so they could just go wherever, I would love to actually be a fly on the wall for huge chunks of that. Cause I, I suspect it's, I don't know. It's let's put it this way: to to be as kind as possible, it's hugely ambitious, uh, uh, and yet there are, you know, it's put on by, as far as I can tell, people who who I'm assuming don't have a lot of experience staging cons, and and those things, conventions can be really, really um, fascinating things. You know, I think I told you about the one where I ended up, you know, working, you know. Eating dinner next to James Doohan uh, and listening to him rant about uh, William Shatner. That convention that I helped work security for was a two-day show and pretty much put the person who staged it in debt for like three full years. You know, well, they 
Oh God! Lost oh. so much money on it. The cynic in me is tempted to say I don't think that's going to happen, considering the prices of Morrison gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also just as much as I snark on it. I also just hope that it's a success for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, mm-hmm. like I, I don't, I don't want this to flop. I don't want this to flame out. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I wish I'm like. No, I know. I, wish I, I could know. be right there with you, Graham. I know. <laughs> I, I know. But well, and I, but I, that's. I mean, do you, do you really? No matter what your feelings are for the people involved, right? You don't want it to fail, right? Well, so here's the thing. Like, despite my feelings for some of the people involved, uh, there's other people involved that I, you know, I'm don't feel one way, you know. And no, I'm not the sort of person to wish disaster on anything, certainly. But um, I am a little hand-wringy about the idea of, yeah, I suppose if it's a success, people will be like, you know, okay, so it was a success, but you really couldn't do that with anyone else but Morrison. But part of my worry is is that if it is a success, I kind of don't want the comic convention model to turn into a high-end boutique mm-hmm. microcon model like this. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think it will. Well, sure, but if I mean, it's don't, a huge... don't get me wrong, if it's a huge success, and again, I God knows how you actually measure success in this case. Sure, right. But, um, you know, it's success just that they don't lose their shirts. It's success that everyone who goes to it actually has the experience that they want to and comes away going, my life is forever changed. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But it's assuming it's a success. Mm-hmm. I don't think next year you're suddenly going to get people being like, and now it's BendisCon. Well, but, that- why w- but why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? If by success, you know, Grant Morrison ends up talking to, uh, you know, Brian Bendis or, you know, or it gets back to Mark Miller that, you know, Grant Morrison made hundred. <laughs> Made a hundred and ten thousand yeah, dollars in a weekend. Yeah, you know, it's like Grant Morrison did it and and managed to po- pocket you know sixty five thousand dollars in one weekend. You know, wouldn't you? Like if Kirkman is going to it and he walks out of it, and Kirkman's kind of like, huh? Yeah. So you can actually sort of like mobilize your base. You no, know, what into... what I what I think is going to happen more mm-hmm. is I think the one to pay attention to is Fables Con. Oh wow! Is that is that a thing? That's a thing. That's a thing that's happening next year. Really? Yeah, and I think that's the one to pay attention to because I think, for example, I can completely see Walking Dead Con mm-hmm. more than I can see Robert Kirkman Con. Yes, well, and that's it. I think I think because Kirkman would, pra- I think that's because he would very sensibly try and do a Walking Dead Con, but I think he's also aware of, like you said, yeah, the Fables Con. You know, I I just. I'm I'm a little worried and leery about it. I mean, on the one hand, there's part of me that sort of uh, understands the attraction and the idea of like, well, you know, you're going to go to a place and it's like it's going to be focused on just the stuff that you like and you don't have to deal with, you know, super long lines. You know, um, I can sort of I can see the temptation, but I also feel that let's put it this way. I hope that they do another image expo. You know, I don't necessarily hope that there's another Morrison Con or, you know, Miller Con or Bendis Con or, you know, Rubicon or whatever it ends up being. Oh my God, Rubicon. 
<laughs> oh, for that alone, Ed Brubaker, if you're listening to this podcast, Brubicon, come on, seriously, just just like in your house in Seattle or something, come <laughs> just for the name alone, Brubicon. Brubicon is actually a pretty awesome name, but uh, but yeah, okay, well that that's okay. I I take it back. I'm okay. I'm on board for Brubicon. Everything else, you've got to have like a name that seems at least half as uh, interesting or entertaining. So that's that's really what we need. I don't know. So yeah, Morrison we, Con. We, it's we just want comedy. We just, exactly. We just want cheap laughs. Um, yeah, something something that's kind of you know. I, I'm all of a sudden I'm like yeah the Mark Miller Fart Fest or <laughs> I guess it'd be Fuck Fest. I don't know. Mm, eh. In any event, um, so. I'm somewhat brain dead. We're getting toward the end of two hours, and what a very odd two hours it was, uh, considering I read a letter from Matt Fraction and Graham read a Jack Kirby text piece. I, Is there I any- think that's the sort of comedy genius that you want from this. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe if we had the soundboard so that every time you like read a sentence from Kirby, we could have Sean Witzke going, hey. <laughs> I was really hoping that one of us would do that during this episode. <laughs> If you were not, if you had not done it by the time we were ending, I really was just going to do it instead of bye. Hey. <laughs> I just realized that's still loaded in the thing. Just keep that forever. Yeah. Well, you got to read something else now so that I can just be like, hey, to each sentence. Can you? Can we redo the Kirby thing? Like we no. can do a second take no, on that? No, we cannot. No, <sighs> it's over, Jeff. It's over. <laughs> Listeners, we hope you have enjoyed this spectacular episode oh yes um just as grant morrison got you all to masturbate for his comic years and years ago i would like to have you all not masturbate please (laughs) just think good thoughts on friday think good thoughts about me on friday on you on friday it is my birthday on the friday following the release of this episode oh i see that's right that's true friday the uh Fifth. Fifth. So, fifth, right. And that's all I want. I just want you all to think a nice thought about me because I want to see if at any point I start glowing. That's all it is. Well, how about how about this? Your birthday, Jeff? Uh, my birthday is Halloween, so it will be coming oh, up soon. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, yeah. imagine my birthday is like warming up for Jeff's. <laughs> I, if I can somehow find it. I'm going to somehow find Jeff Blaster's Amazon wish list and post it online. See, that's not fair. I was actually oh, going to say this. That would be too. awesome. Yeah. I I think people, that what we should people mm. No, you no, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on, Graham. Oh. First A, yes, you know in your heart that it's right, but like <laughs> No. But I well, I do I, think that there would be a thing. Yeah. No, because here's the thing. I get all the comps and stuff. You do not. If we cannot convince publishers to actually start sending you stuff, we can convince fans to send you stuff instead. Okay. This is uh, what I've decided. But I've had fans who have sent me stuff. And believe me, it's awesome. That's why I think they should also do it for you. And Maybe Even better. Mm-hmm. If they could send you Marvel stuff, because then you won't be spending any money on it. Well, that's true. But then it's still... I wouldn't. But then the fans so, buy it. Also, and yeah, that money's, The money's going into the system. Oh my God, that'd be even better. Fans, if you have Marvel stuff that you don't want anymore... But you already own, so you wouldn't be spending. Oh my god! Right, that's true. Jeff, you know, sir, we'll have to find like you should get a PO box or something. 
Well, I have to say, Jay Smitty did uh, did me a huge favor by sending me that Celestial Madonna and uh, Scarlet Witch and Vision a Year in the Life trades. And in fact, he sent me the first four issues of Team America, which I have to sit down and read. Oh my God, I was just reading him at Team America the other day. Were you? Yeah. Uh, I was reading the... God, what magazine? Back issue, I think. One of the two mm-hmm. magazines has an article about basically how Team America issue one was done, and then Jim Shooter looked at it and was like, "This is a piece of shit." Starting <laughs> <laughs> from scratch, and we have two days, and so issue one of Team America was done in two days. From hey, <laughs> sorry. Oh, well, no, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So I think of that when you read it. Yeah, I I will keep that in mind, that it's basically the E.T. Atari cartridge of comic books. Um, And that being said, I kind of look forward to it. I just love the idea that Jim Shooter was like, what? This is crap. Because some of the stuff that he's referred to as crap has been like, you know, Doug Mench, Monix run on Master of Kung Fu, Steve Englehart, the career of Steve Gerber, you know, half of Jim Starlin's work, you know. What the hell is that noise? What noise? There's a growling behind you right now, Jeff. Was it a motor? It, was it a car? Yeah, there was actually a loud motorcycle out on the street. It's amazing how sensitive these microphones are. It's Absolutely. Because literally you're talking all of a sudden. It goes, yeah, and it, uh, maybe I hope I didn't fuck up the setting on this thing while moving it around. I was trying to test. It's hilarious. I'm actually looking at a, a, a blanket while I've been talking to you this entire podcast because I'm trying to figure out where the echo thing is going on and and some some people suggested like putting you know sound buffler bafflers up against the wall and uh, this is what I've got it will probably do nothing (laughs) well I hate to tell you it didn't sound any different to me okay well that's fine no technically well this is the thing we always sound more or less the same here it's like when I edit after the fact that we get those yeah, if I, if I'm still getting the echo, I'm going to have to look into like a slightly better set of um, sealed headphones, so that uh, maybe even a diving helmet. Oh my so god, that would that not be spectacular? Just for the photograph, <laughs> listeners. Me at the listeners, desk with the enormous. I'm cutting us off because Jeff and I are actually just talking out, like about stuff now and not even podcasting anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh right, we really are. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Jeff, Lester's birthday is on Halloween, which I keep forgetting. I shouldn't because your birthday is on Halloween. That's spectacular. Um, So start thinking about how you can get Jeff Marvel Comics. This is my new thing. How you can get Jeff Marvel Comics without paying for them and not stealing. Thank you very much. I'm not advocating that either. Um, And we will work out some way to actually get them to Jeff because that would be awesome. I really like that. I really like that idea. That's, That's my thing. I am so appalled that you've actually turned a podcast that is airing two days before your birthday into a shill to get me presents as opposed to a shill to get you no, presents. I no, I don't need presents, Jeff. No one needs no, presents. I, I don't want presents. I don't really. Yeah. Apart from like the joke of telling everyone to think about me so I glow. Like I'm. I guess it is pretty funny when you put it like that. I'm so. trying to forget that my birthday is happening. So I don't really want to be yeah, that... reminded by, by being gifted something off Comixology or even the own yeah. Savage Critics own web store. Hey, Jeff, have you got a URL for the Savage Critics own web store? 
Uh, I should. Hold on. It's... <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, because yeah. it's, it's not I just... Re- I usually get to it by going to the savagecritic.com, and then in the corner there's a digital bookstore link. I always click on that. Because, but So anyone listening to us can certainly do that as well. Um, but scrolling down, scrolling. I scroll too far. Scrolling. <laughs> scrolling. <laughs> Scrolling. Oh my god, I saw the end of Venture Brothers season three. Wow. What wow. when is that? I don't remember. Uh oh God. Okay. This is the problem with the muscle relaxants. I don't remember either. What um, happens in it? <laughs> what doesn't happen in it? Uh Brock, it's basically Brock believes the agency is trying to hunt him down. Um and so he's on the run. And meanwhile, the monarchs' men are getting ready to make their their you know move against the ventures, which are now unprotected. Since oh Brock yes, is, yes, is fleeing. It's, uh, I've just yeah. looked it up. It's apparently the family that slays together stays together. Yes, parts one and two, and then I saw the first two episodes, three episodes of season four, which Spectacular. were kind of. <laughs> I, I think season four is when it goes completely off the rails in the best way. Oh, okay, interesting. Because I think it's having trouble getting there. I I sort of enjoyed the weird one year later approach that they were taking for half of that episode where they're flipping it back. Oh, actually it's the whole thing where you figure out what order the scenes are happening in by the CGC rating of the comic at the time, which is brilliant. I mean, that's like the world's craziest flip floppy time episode ever. Um, But I remember thinking the one after it was a little, you say that, but Dr. Who this weekend, he, he does like playing with his time. Yes. Did in it was it satisfying? Uh, it it isn't isn't. It's very emotional. Mm, mm-hmm. This is this is the one oh, that play airs two days from now. Are you are you paying oh, attention? Oh, Like, are you watching this year or not? No, no, I'm still a couple of seasons behind because Edie was on on the Doctor Who boat not, and then yeah. rapidly yeah jumped off the Doctor Who boat exactly. Well, maybe next week we'll talk but, about that, so I can a tell you what happens and b I'm not ruining it for anyone. Yeah, I think that sounds good. Um, uh, oh, and this is the most insanely difficult uh, URL to remember. But if you go to www.savagecritic.com slash shop slash, you're at our digital storefront. Okay. So, and I'm guessing that, that Graham is going to want the latest issue of Tarot. Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing which... that he's not, so... Let's just move on from that. I don't know. <laughs> no, really. I've, I've, I've only ever read one issue, and that was because you and Brian Hibbs basically dared me to. It's true. And your response was, as I recall, way more horrified and annoyed at us for. for oh, that was such. Than, yeah, that, than, I'm never going to get that part of my life back, Jeff. That's true. That's not, you know, like, it's not oh, even funny. God. It was just bad. I I don't know. Tarot, every once in a while I'll read someone capping it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that exists. That book, well, not only does it exist, gosh darn it, why don't I keep waiting for the, the picture to pop up so I can tell listeners what issue not to buy you. <laughs> um, so, I'd like to point out, seriously, you think this is funny? It would not be funny. <laughs> I know, I know, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, listeners, we are leaving now, if only because I have to get back to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, yes. Yes, listeners, but... 
Bye. <laughs> well played. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you next Bye. time, everyone. <laughs>